Scripture reading this morning will be from Acts chapter 8, verses 5 through 12. Acts 8, 5 through 12. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was a great joy in that city. But there was, there was a certain man called Simon, who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great, to whom they all gave heed, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. certainly grateful for the opportunity to be together. We have those who are visiting with us. We are especially glad that you have come our way. We hope that you might be able to stick around a little bit afterwards, get to visit with us after services are over. We're thankful for the chance that we've had to be with our brothers and sisters to worship God and to remember the Lord and His death and His sacrifice this morning. And now it's a time in our worship service where we're going to spend some time thinking about some things of utmost importance, and that is our salvation in Christ Jesus. On the first of the month, we usually try to have a sermon that deals with first principles. We, last month, we began looking at some of the examples of conversions in the book of Acts, and we're going to continue that this month as well. In Acts chapter 8, we have the conversion of the Samaritans. In Acts chapter 8, if you'll remember, going back to the very first chapter of the book of Acts, Jesus had told His apostles that they were going to go to Samaria. In Acts chapter eight or chapter 1, in verse 8, He says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be My witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. And that kind of provides a template or an outline of the book of Acts in a lot of ways, and where the gospel was going to be preached. And in Acts chapter 8, you have the gospel going to Samaria, as Jesus had told His apostles that would happen. In the opening verses of Acts chapter 8, you have Saul of Tarsus, who began his persecution after the death of Stephen, that he began to go against Christians and against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered about, and they began to go preaching the word, those disciples who were leaving Jerusalem. And one of those disciples is Philip. Philip the Evangelist we are introduced to. And he is the one who goes to Samaria preaching the gospel. If you notice in verse six or verse four, therefore those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. The crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs 
which he was performing. That Philip, he goes to Samaria, and there he is preaching, and people are listening. That's what is amazing about this. In verse 6, the crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip. And they were listening intently to the gospel message, the declaration that Philip was preaching. We get a little bit more information about what, Jesus, what Philip was preaching. That is in verse 12. It says, But when they believed Philip, preaching the good news or the gospel about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. And he is preaching the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. We'll talk some more about that phrase. A lot of times we see that phrase, the name, or in the name of. And that usually, and I think rightly so, describes the authority. It is by the authority of Jesus the Christ. I think in the context of kingdom language, we see that that's probably talking about Jesus' kingly authority, that He is the King over the kingdom. And that is what the Gospel is in its presentation. And Philip is the one who is declaring the Gospel, the good news. And in Acts chapter 21, we later see Philip. This is the last time that we read about Philip in the book of Acts. But in Acts chapter 21 and in verse 8, he is in Caesarea and it says, On the next day we left and came to Caesarea and entering the house of Philip the Evangelist, who is one of the seven, we stayed with him. This is the same Philip that is preaching here in Samaria. And he is described as the Evangelist. Philip the Evangelist. He was one of the seven that was chosen in Acts, the sixth chapter, along with Stephen and, and others. But he is the evangelist. He is the one who preaches good news. He is the one who declares glad tidings. That is who Philip is. That is what he likes to do. That is what he wants to do. He wants to share good news. The word evangelist is related to the word gospel in the Greek, in the original language. You could say he's a gospelizer. He is someone who is telling people about the gospel. And it's not a title, it's a description of what he is doing. And here he is, he is in Samaria in Acts the 8th chapter, and he's preaching. He is preaching the good news. He is declaring something to the Samaritans. And as they are listening, in verse 8, we see that there was much rejoicing in the city. And then you have the uh, fact that Simon the sorcerer, he is there. He is someone who practices... Uh, sorcery, and he is convinced that Philip is truly a man of God. And so the deception is over. People have become enlightened. They have heard Philip preach. And he is preaching a message about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. If you want to boil it down to what the gospel is, I think it can be summed up in those two things. 
It's about the kingdom of God and it's about the kingship of Jesus Christ. As the book of Acts closes in Acts chapter 28, in Acts the 28th chapter, notice here as the Apostle Paul has arrived in Rome and he is under house arrest. In Acts chapter 28 and in verse 23 it says, When they had set a day for Paul, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers, and he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets from morning until evening. Do you see that he's preaching the same thing? He's preaching about the kingdom of God and he's telling them about Jesus. And then you continue on in verse 30. It says, And he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. That Paul's preaching was the same as Philip's preaching. They were preaching about the kingdom and about the king, Jesus Christ. But you might begin to wonder, what kingdom is he talking about? Well, in Acts chapter 8 and verse 12, it's called the kingdom of God. In Acts chapter 28, Paul is going and he's, he's speaking with the Jewish people in Rome, that he is talking from the prophets. He's looking at the prophets and trying to show them the kingdom of God has come, that it has been established. And the kingdom is a theme throughout the Old Testament. The Old Testament prophets, they speak of this kingdom in the coming kingdom of God. The prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 2, he has a very important prophecy here about the establishment of the kingdom of God. In Isaiah chapter 2 and beginning at verse 1, if you'll begin there with me, in Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 1, it says, The word which Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now it will come about that in the last days the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills, and all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us concerning His ways, and that we may walk in His paths. For the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And He will judge between the nations, and will render decisions for many peoples, and they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. Now in you, these verses, we don't read about the word kingdom per se, but that's exactly what is being described here. That the kingdom is going to be established People are going to come and hear the law of the Lord. That the law of the Lord is going to be declared from Mount Zion, from Jerusalem. Is the word of the Lord going to be proclaimed? And in the Gospel of Luke, in Luke chapter 24, skipping ahead to our New Testaments, in Luke the 24th chapter, I want you to see what Jesus tells His apostles. This is after Jesus has been raised from the dead. 
And in Luke chapter 24 and in verse 44, Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. I want you to see that there is a great importance on this message of the gospel of forgiveness of sins being declared from a specific location, that is Jerusalem. That this is where it was all going to begin. The kingdom of God and the message of the kingdom, the message of hope, the message of salvation, the gospel was going to have its source in its very beginning and infancy there in Jerusalem. You continue to look throughout the prophets. And there are several other passages that we could look at, but I want us to look at Daniel, the second chapter. In Daniel chapter 2, perhaps you'll remember in Daniel, the second chapter, Nebuchadnezzar has had a dream. And Daniel begins to interpret this dream. And there was this odd-looking statue of made of different pieces there was part of it was made of gold and silver and iron and clay and Daniel as he is going through and interpreting this dream he says these are all representing future kingdoms that would come future nations that would come after the Babylonian kingdom he is preaching, or he, he is interpreting this to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon at this time. But there is going to be the Medes and the Persians that come after you. There is going to be the kingdom of Greece that would come after, after them. Then there is going to come the last kingdom, the kingdom of Rome, that would be established. And yet, even that kingdom is going to be destroyed. But it's not going to come through a natural event or another earthly kingdom he's speaking of. He says in Daniel 2 and verse 44, In the days of those kings, that is the kings of Rome, that fourth empire, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and it crushed iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. There's a lot that we could dig into here, but what I want you to see is that 
this kingdom that God was going to establish, this divinely appointed kingdom, it was going to take place in the days of the kings of Rome, that fourth empire that Daniel was speaking about and prophesying of. In verse 44 he says, In the days of those kings, the God of heaven is going to do this. And He's going to establish this kingdom. His kingdom. And it's going to be a kingdom that will never be destroyed. No man, no other nation is going to be able to destroy it. It will endure forever. And so what we have here is that this kingdom of God that He is going to establish, it's going to begin in Jerusalem. And then it's going to begin during the time of the Fourth Empire. And it just takes a cursory study of world history to know that that's the Roman Empire. You have Babylon, the Medes and the Persians, the Greeks, and then Rome. And Rome, in the days of the Roman Empire, God was going to establish His kingdom. And so when Jesus is born... Under the Roman Empire, the time is ripe. The time, the, the expectations are reaching the climax because people are expecting the kingdom any day now, essentially. And so we see that what Isaiah and Daniel are preparing us for is that coming kingdom. In the short prophecy of Joel, in Joel chapter 2, which is quoted in the book of Acts, in Acts the second chapter, and we learn that in Acts chapter 2, Peter goes back to Joel's prophecy and he quotes from it to help us understand that this is speaking about what was going on in Acts chapter 2, the establishment of the church, the coming of, of the Spirit, was going to be associated with the establishment of the kingdom. And so if you remember these important places, these are sort of plot points along the way. You remember Isaiah 2. You remember Daniel 2. You remember Joel 2. And then you remember Acts chapter 2, which we will talk some more about in just a moment. And all of this is leading up to the establishment of the kingdom. I can't help but think that this is something that Philip would have been mentioning and talking about as he's talking about the kingdom, that the kingdom is coming. The kingdom is here now, he says. And in Acts chapter 1, these expectations after Jesus' death and after His resurrection, the expectations of the coming of this kingdom were greatly enhanced, even more. Because you remember John was preaching about the kingdom of God. Jesus was preaching the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then in Acts chapter 1, we see after Jesus was raised... In his 40 days remaining here on the earth before he was ascending into heaven, what is he teaching his apostles? Have you ever wondered what those conversations might have been like for those 40 days? I have an inkling that it might have been a crash course in the kingdom. Because in Acts chapter 1 and verse 3, 
He says, To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering, by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of forty days, and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. And you continue reading in verse 6. They ask, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? They're asking, okay, it's time. It's here. It's time. And Jesus, He refocuses them. He says, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons. You need to focus on your mission. That is, you are going to be My witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Jesus assures them that these things are going to happen when God designates for them to happen. But you need to focus on your mission. And sure enough, in Acts chapter 2, the Spirit comes upon them, the apostles, and they begin preaching. Peter and the apostles, they quote from Joel chapter 2. And then they begin preaching Jesus. And they emphasize that Jesus is now sitting on the throne of David. And after He was killed and after He was raised from the dead, in Acts chapter 2 and verse 30, as, he, as Peter and the apostles have been quoting from David in the Psalms, it says, And so because He was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ. That he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and here. Don't miss what they are declaring that day. That Jesus is sitting on the throne. Jesus is the King. You don't have a kingdom unless you have a, or you don't have a king unless you don't unless you have a kingdom. Jesus is now sitting on on the throne and He is ruling and He has authority and He has power and that He declares in verse 36, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ. And then 3,000 that day were saved. And they were added to the Lord's church. The kingdom was inaugurated when the church was established. That's the message that Philip wanted these people to see and to hear. That the kingdom of God has come. You can become part of that kingdom that God has established. Because God has put His King on the throne. As the name of Jesus Christ 
as we alluded to a moment ago in Acts chapter 8 and verse 12, that Philip is preaching the name of Jesus Christ. He's talking about the authority of Jesus as the enthroned King. He is the King who offers salvation from sin. And preaching Jesus requires preaching about His law, doesn't it? That a king, he has a law, he has a message, he has commands that he expects his subjects to obey. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, in 1 Corinthians the ninth chapter, notice there's a phrase here that Paul uses a couple of times, once here and once in the book of Galatians. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and in verse 21, he speaks about the law of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 21, he says, To those who are without law, as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. He says that there is a law of Christ. There is a law of the King. He uses that same phrase in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 2. And the King, Jesus, He has a law that must be obeyed. And it's negligence to separate preaching the King and His law from the kingdom. Sometimes I think people like to get a little fancy or a little cute. They like to say, we need to preach Christianity, not churchianity. You can't preach about the King without preaching about the church. You can't preach about salvation without preaching about obedience to the law. Sometimes people will say, preach the man, not, not the plan. And you cannot separate those. Yes, we have to focus on the stories of Jesus. We have to focus on Jesus Himself. But we also have to focus on doing things the right way in a way that is pleasing to the King. It's not an either-or kind of proposition. It's both. We have to preach the kingdom and Christ, which is exactly what Philip did. In Acts chapter 8 and verse 12, it says, But when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. But then as you continue on, as we go back to Acts chapter 8 and looking at the events that were unfolding here, as many were being baptized, and we'll talk some more about that in a moment, but what you then have is a little aside about the Holy Spirit that takes place. In Acts chapter 8 and in verse 14, it says, Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for He had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. We have many people in the religious world that end up confused about the Holy Spirit. 
And it's certainly not an easy subject. There's some differences that we might all share. But what I want you to see is that receiving the Holy Spirit is not a sign of someone's salvation. As maybe some of our Pentecostal friends might argue. Because I want you to notice the language here. It says that they had received the Word of God. The Samaritans, they received the Word, but they had not received the Spirit. Were they saved? Well, yes, they were saved. They had received the Word. They had heard and obeyed the Gospel. They later received the miraculous power of the Spirit through the laying on of hands from the apostles. I think that's an important thing to note here, that a miraculous giving of the Holy Spirit was imparted to some through the laying on of hands, but not everyone received that power. It was limited in scope because... What do you have, as we alluded to in our Bible study this morning in the adult class, what does Simon try to do? He tries to buy it, doesn't he? He tries to buy that power. Not all of them received it. Some of them received it. But not everyone. Receiving the Holy Spirit, even a miraculous power of the Holy Spirit, that was not a sign of someone's salvation. And so we need to understand that I think this passage is a very powerful passage to present to those who might hold a a view that would suggest that you have to have a working of the Holy Spirit in your life in a miraculous way, that you have to begin speaking in tongues or something like that. If you're a true Christian. Well, what we see in Acts 8 in the conversion of the Samaritans pretty simple that the gospel was preached and people were baptized those who heard Philip's message about the kingdom and the king they were being baptized In verse 13, even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued on with Philip, and as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. And you have people who might have been skeptical of this. They were genuinely convinced, and they were baptized. And when they were baptized, the Samaritans experienced, as Jesus said, a new birth. They were added to the kingdom. In John, the third chapter, in John chapter 3, in that conversation with Nicodemus, says, Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He essentially says the same thing again in verse 5. That unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. To be born again is to be born of water. 
to be convicted and converted. And yes, you have to be convinced by the Spirit. The Spirit is involved. In the book of Titus, I think Paul helps us understand that phrase. In Titus chapter 3 and verse 5, as Paul writes, speaking about our salvation in Christ, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. We received the gift of salvation from the Spirit. We're not promised a miraculous ability or anything of that nature. Once we are baptized and born again, born of water and of the Spirit, we are added into the kingdom of God. In the New Testament, it emphasizes the importance of baptism over and over again. And those who are baptized are born again. They are added to the church. In Colossians chapter 1, those who are saved and redeemed, notice the language that's used here in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 13. For He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. Those who are saved are transferred. They are added into the kingdom. That kingdom has come. We're not waiting for a future kingdom to be established. The kingdom came right when it was supposed to, during the time of the Roman Empire. Then you continue on as you read in verse 18, speaking about Christ, the head of the body, the church. As I mentioned before, that with the establishment of the church, the kingdom was inaugurated. The kingdom began that day. And that when you're baptized, you are added into the kingdom. You become a citizen of the kingdom of God. Those who are baptized, they are walking in newness of life. This is how Paul describes it in Romans chapter 6. Baptized believers are saved. Peter, the apostle, says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21, that... There is also an antitype that doth now save us, baptism. And in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, and in Acts chapter 22 and verse 16, we learn that the forgiveness of our sins, the washing of our sins, is granted to us when we are baptized, when we are immersed in water. People who are baptized, they receive all of these promises and blessings after they are baptized, not before they are baptized. And so the conversion of the Samaritans is really a rather simple conversion. They heard the preaching of the Gospel That Philip was proclaiming Christ to them. And they were giving attention to what he said, and they heard him. And then they believed his words.
In Acts 8 and verse 12, But when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. They heard him and they believed him. And as a result, they were baptized. They heard the gospel and then they responded to the gospel. A very simple message, isn't it? And that is repeated throughout the book of Acts. That when we hear the gospel of Christ, there is a response that we must make. There is a choice that we must make. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? That's the question that we all must answer. Do we believe that Jesus sits as king and rules over his kingdom? And are you willing to submit yourself to his law, to his governance? Do you want to become part of that kingdom We want you to. We encourage you to. That Jesus invites you. And within that kingdom, there's the greatest blessing of all. The forgiveness of your sins. Philip preached the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. That same kingdom and that same king is available for you today. This morning, if you've heard this word about the kingdom of God and about Jesus and you need to respond in obedience to the king and submit yourself to him, giving Christ your heart, Will you come and be baptized, have your sins washed away, to become His child? Have your sins forgiven? Maybe you've already made that decision in the past, but you've not been living up to that call. You've not been following the law of the King. Will you seek His mercy and His forgiveness? He wants you. To repent, just as whenever Simon later sinned, Peter told him, repent and pray. Will you repent and pray? We're here to help you and encourage you in whatever way we possibly can. If you are subject to the Lord's invitation, would you come now as we stand and as we sing?